So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and after, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you once again for your word. And you remind us in your word, O Lord. You remind us by your word that we are utterly and completely dependent upon you. We thank you for this revelation of yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you have recorded these events in the book of Ruth for our benefit. But more importantly, you've recorded these events for your glory. And we pray these things to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we were reading this this section, Ruth 4 verses 1 to 12, did you notice uh, that something was missing? Did you notice, uh, in fact, that someone was missing? All this is taking place in the absence of the very person whom it most affects, Ruth. And you may notice, if you look back in the third chapter, around verse 17, I believe, Ruth has the final words that she will utter in this book. She becomes only a person who is referenced, no more a person who speaks or who acts. She is in a position here in chapter 4 of being utterly at the disposal, at the mercy in the hands of of this man, Boaz, and of this unnamed Redeemer, whom he goes to speak with. Now, we do not like the fact, or the thought even, that our fate, that our life rests in the hands of someone else. How would Ruth feel about this? Completely out of control about what will happen to her 
over the course of this day, who she may end up marrying in due time. Now, we don't like the thought of having our lives in someone else's hands, but if you have suffered a heart attack, if you have gone under the knife, under anesthesia, you have placed your life in someone else's hands. And those who've been in combat know what it's like to trust in that man at your side and to recognize that if he doesn't defend you and protect you, that you are lost. But for the most part, we can live our lives. The Lord and his grace and in this privilege of being in our nation, we can live our lives under the delusion with the thought that we control what happens to us, that we are in control of our lives. We hold our own lives in our hands. But there are times, however, there are times when we are reminded that this is not the case. This past week, for instance, I had to call uh, the power company to send a man out to cut the power off at our meter. There was a problem in the meter box. And I had to go in. And once that man had cut the power, I had to trust that he had indeed cut the power off because I was grabbing hold of those two lines coming into the house. And he had checked it with a voltmeter. He had flipped the switch back at the, at the, at the, at the service unit. But I still asked him before I touched those wires, have you cut this power? And it was a moment of fear for me. And it reminded me of the truth that I really don't control my life and I don't control my destiny as much as I would like to think. The truth is, for all of us, that we don't have as much control as we'd like to think. Anytime you fly... You put your life in the hands of that pilot and the life, your life in the hands of that mechanic who serviced that plane. Your life in the hands of those who have manufactured the plane. Anytime you get in a car to go to the supermarket, you are trusting that those other people will not crash into you. Anytime you get into a passenger seat, you're trusting that the driver will not do anything irresponsible. But from the moment that Ruth decided to embrace Naomi's God as her own, and so returned to her with her to Bethlehem. She trusted her life. She entrusted her life in the hands of God. And through a series of events, after she arrived in Bethlehem, she was reminded that she was not in control. And in the entirety of the book of Ruth, it seems that she made only two decisions, maybe three. She made the decision to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem. She made the decision to go into the fields to glean, and it seems as though she made this decision to follow Naomi's foolhardy plan. But the most important decision, that concerning her redemption, that decision was made for her. The actions that she took were dictated to her by others. And in our passage this morning, Boaz is the one who handles all the details of her redemption. He holds her life in his hands. But only in a small sense, only in a, an immediate sense. In reality, and ultimately, and we'll see in this passage, even Boaz doesn't know how the outcome of the matter will be. Ultimately, Ruth's life is in the hands of the Lord. And so here, I would ask you to think on this as we go through this passage. Ruth's redemption rested in God's hands alone. And our redemption rests in God's hands alone. Again, Ruth's redemption rested in God's hands alone. Even though Boaz was there. Our redemption rests in God's hands alone.
And so I've divided this passage very simply up into two sections. A meeting in the gate, verses 1 to 6, and Boaz redeems Ruth, verses 7 to 12. Again, a meeting in the gate, verses 1 to 6, and Boaz redeems Ruth, verses 7 to 12. So let's look at this meeting in the gate. In the last chapter, everything was going great according to Naomi's plan, up to the point where Boaz mentioned that there was this other closer relative, a a nearer redeemer. And we must have, we can imagine, Ruth's heart must have shuddered just a little bit at this knowledge. And so Boaz sends her back to her mother-in-law. He wants to assure her of his intentions and of his plan. And so he sends her this massive amount of grain that she can barely carry to her mother-in-law. He wants her to know of his desire to redeem her. But everything hangs in the balance. What will happen at this meeting? It all depends on what this other redeemer decides to do. And so after Boaz and Ruth had parted ways that morning, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says that Boaz went to the gate of the city in Bethlehem. And he sat down there. And Now you need to know something about the gates of ancient walled cities. Maybe some of you are aware of this. These gates could be the length. The passage you had to go through to get inside the city from, from outside to inside could be as long as 100 feet. They could be as wide as 15 to 20 feet. There were alcoves and benches where people would meet. They had roofs over them. They had places where members of the, the military garrison could stand and protect and guard the gates. And as a result of the size, as a result of of the shelter provided by the roof and the fact that every single person who wanted to go into the town of Bethlehem or leave the town of Bethlehem had to go through that gate. It was a logical place for business to be conducted, for commerce to be conducted. uh, Merchants would set up their tables there. But it was also a place where illegal transactions took place. And so Boaz has two things in mind. He's going to the place, the court of law for the city of Bethlehem, And he's also going to the most likely place that he will see this man, uh, this kinsman redeemer. And while Boaz is sitting there in the the Lord's providence, this man happens to pass by. And that's the way the the language there is in verse 1. The man passes by. Lo and behold, we're not even given his name. In the Hebrew, it's it's not even friend. It's so-and-so passes by. We don't even want to know his name. And he asks him to sit down. And then Boaz gets up and he goes into the the town. He goes around and he finds finds ten men of the elders of the city. This is the way that legal transactions were carried out. And after Boaz and the elders had been seated with this no-named redeemer in the gate, he told the man about Naomi wishing to sell her land. And by doing this, Boaz is reminding this man that he is responsible. He is her redeemer. And he is responsible to ensure that Naomi does not continue to exist in the poverty that she has been experiencing. Here's the man's opportunity. This is his chance. And as Boaz says in verse 4, he says, If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, let me know. Tell me. For there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. Now Boaz's care and concern for Ruth has been evident from the moment that she showed up in his field. There's no question of his preference that he redeem Ruth. There's no question of his preference that this man not exercise his right to redeem Ruth. And yet, legally, he's bound to make sure that this man has the opportunity, the first right of refusal. 
And in reality, the chances that this man would not redeem Naomi, her land, are very, very slim. He stood to expand his holdings considerably. Naomi was getting up in years. She may not live a whole lot longer. She had no heirs. Her husband had died. Her two sons had died. There were no grandchildren. There was no one in the year of of Jubilee to whom the land would revert back to. And so he could add this parcel of land to his holdings. He could retain it for his children, for his heirs. And it would only take a small investment for him to do this. And so the man decided to, to do just that. He says, I will redeem it. Now it is good that Ruth and Naomi weren't there. They might have cried out. They were counting on, on Boaz being the man to whom Ruth would be married. And at this point, it seems like Naomi's plan is falling apart. Now imagine that this was your life in the balance. Imagine that this was your life that depended on the actions of this one unnamed person. How would you be feeling at this point? Had she been there, Ruth would not have been able to say a thing, a word on her behalf. And so it's better that she wasn't there. But she was completely dependent on Boaz, her representative, her counselor, to, to, to speak on her behalf. Now before things get too far, before this kinsman redeemer is allowed to go any further, Boaz speaks up quickly. In verse 5, he gives a little more information. <laughs> Perhaps he was withholding it. We don't know. Maybe he was waiting to, to show all the cards. But he says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Now here's a piece of information that is a little bit thornier than the first, isn't it? It complicates matters. The land, in fact, won't be his free and clear if he's able to provide an heir for Naomi. But Boaz has just reminded the man that he has a responsibility as this kinsman redeemer, as this near relative, he has a responsibility to keep this relative of his, Elimelech's line from dying out. It's on the verge here. And so the intention is that he will produce an heir with Ruth to carry on the name of Elimelech. And this child would be the one who would inherit the land that belongs at this point to Naomi. So the man's minor investment would have resulted uh, in Elimelech's heir, not his own, getting the land as an inheritance. He weighs the options, and in verse 6 he says that he cannot redeem the land because he might impair his own inheritance. He turns over his right to redeem to Boaz. He gives it over to Boaz. Now it is God alone. We can see this from this passage. It is God alone who has given Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi the desires of their hearts. There is no way that Boaz could play this in such a way to ensure the outcome. And yet all three of their desires was to have what is about to happen take place. So let's look now at verses 7 to 12. Boaz redeems Ruth. In order to ratify their agreement, Boaz and the other redeemer use what to us is a very strange custom. And the author of the book of Ruth even acknowledges this. He gives some explanation. He says, in former times in Israel, they used to do this 
this thing. He says in verse 7, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, and he gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now this seems very strange to us. We have no customs uh, that are, are, are based on this old custom. And we can only speculate as to why uh, there's a transaction uses a, a sandal to represent what's taking place. In the Old Testament, we do know that shoes represent, they symbolize power. They symbolize possession. They symbolize domination. You remember Moses, when he comes before the burning bush, what does God ask him to do? What does God command him to do? He says to remove his shoes. This is symbolic of the Lord's Lordship of God's lordship over him. And Moses acknowledges this by removing his shoes. Well, in addition to this, to set foot on land, to set foot on, uh, on, on land was associated with ownership of the land. In various places in the Old Testament, we see this. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 11, verse 24, Moses reminds Israel of God's promise. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. So there's a significance there's a, there's a right to claim that's represented by this exchange of the sandal. And so when the other kinsman in verse 8 said, buy it for yourself, he took off his sandal and he gave it to Boaz. This is very much like handling over the keys to your house at settlement. The keys represent the house. They represent possession of the house. And in this specific instance, the sandal represented the right to redeem. The unnamed redeemer was not giving Naomi and Ruth the, the land over to Boaz in this transaction. He was giving over his right to redeem them. And in the following verses, Boaz will formally redeem Ruth. And with a sandal in his hand, we can imagine Boaz standing up and he speaks to the elders and he speaks to all the people who have gathered in the gate to watch the proceedings. And he says, You are all witnesses this day. Boaz is calling on these people to witness this. This is a formal, this is, this is turned into a formal legal transaction. And there are legal protocols that must be followed. And so Boaz calls upon them to witness what is taking place. Boaz is buying the land from Naomi that belonged to Elimelech, to Kilion, and to Malon. He says that in verse 10. But more importantly, he has, as he says in verse 10, bought Ruth to be his wife. Now does the use of that word make your eyebrows raise when speaking of, of Ruth, of a woman? But most likely in this case, as is apparent, both based on the affection that Boaz has for Ruth, the love that he has shown for her, but also the fact that no money has been exchanged, it's, it's most likely that this was a, a legal, a formal way of saying it. But it did not mean that Boaz literally bought Ruth. There's no money that has been exchanged. Who would, who would Boaz pay? Naomi? She doesn't own Ruth. Who would he pay? This is not intended to be taken literally in this case. And he goes on in verse 10 to give the purpose for redeeming Ruth. Yes, he loves her. That's the motive. But the purpose, the outcome of this redemption of Ruth is to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
Boaz is indeed concerned that the name of Elimelech not be cut off. He's concerned that this land that belongs to Elimelech not go into the hands of another. In the Old Testament, land, the promised land, was equated with eternal life. It was, in a sense, heaven. And so to, to lose, for a family to lose its inheritance was for it to lose its place in paradise. Boaz is deeply concerned that this not take place. He wants to make sure that the land goes to the heir of Malon and Elimelech. Because otherwise, this land will be lost forever. And in redeeming Ruth for this purpose, Boaz is promising to provide a son for Naomi. And this will play into the last section in the chapter we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Boaz is promising a son for Naomi. Well, after Boaz has declared that he has redeemed both Naomi's land and Ruth, he charges the people to be witnesses to all that they have seen and heard. And in verse 11, they they say, yes, we are witnesses. They will attest in court if they need to. If this unnamed redeemer tries to challenge what has just taken place, they can prove, they can testify that it indeed did take place. Within the witnesses are the ones who begin to speak. They, they give a blessing. And the blessing is in the form of a prayer. They say, may the Lord make the woman or make your wife who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, if we need any more confirmation, if Ruth needed any more confirmation that she was now a true Israelite, she has gotten it in this passage. May the Lord make the wife who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. It is Ruth who receives the first blessing of the witnesses. She has been received as one of their own. And what's more, she is linked to Rachel and Leah. Who are Rachel and Leah? They are the founding mothers of Israel. The 12 tribes that descend from Jacob are their 12 children. Judah is a child of Leah. And after the people have given a blessing to Ruth, they pronounce a blessing on Boaz. They pray for Boaz to act worthily in Ephrathah. Now, a more literal translation would be, may you prosper in Ephrathah. They want Boaz's house to be built up. They want him to succeed. They want him to, to grow in wealth. They want him to prosper. They also pray that, the Lord, that he would be renowned in Bethlehem. That he, be, he would be well known among his people, that he would be remembered. Now just as the people linked Ruth to Rachel and Leah in verse 11, now in verse 12 they link Boaz to Perez, the son of Judah. Boaz was in fact a descendant of Perez. And although Perez was not the oldest of Judah's son, he was better known than the others. Two of Judah's sons were struck down by the Lord. The other two were older One was older, one was younger. And yet Perez is the one who gains prominence. He was better known because of the circumstances of his birth to Tamar. And you can read all about this in Genesis 38. It reads like a soap opera. And the prayer is that Boaz will be remembered. Like Judah, 
that he will be remembered because of his children. Now the importance in ancient Israel of a person's name being remembered is seen in the fact that the other kinsman redeemer is never mentioned by name. He has lost his place in the history books of Israel. He's been wiped out. He's been blotted out. He doesn't even get to live on in infamy. (laughs) He could have been known by name as the man who refused to redeem Naomi, who refused to redeem Ruth. He doesn't even get that (laughs) uh, privilege. But as you know, Boaz and Ruth, their names live on. They lived on in Israel. They continue to live on to our day. If you don't know anyone else in the genealogy of Matthew, you'll probably remember Ruth is in there. Maybe Rahab. Probably David. But you'll remember Ruth is in there. Why? It's because of hers and Boaz's famous descendants. David and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout this process of redemption, Ruth has been in a position of helplessness, hasn't she? She can do nothing. Except by making the own, uh, her own desire known to Boaz that she wants him to marry her, she played no part. Now, it is not easy for any of us to give up even the smallest amount of control. Some of us don't even like anybody else to drive for us. We want to have that control. We don't want to give up anything even when the stakes are trivial. How hard must it have been for Ruth to just sit back and let this man Boaz take care of her? And Ruth, a woman in ancient Israel, would have been much more accustomed to matters being out of her hands than we are today. Women in the ancient world had very little to say for themselves. Ruth had to trust Boaz, but more importantly, she had to trust the Lord God of Israel. Because ultimately the outcome was out of Boaz's hands. Boaz could not know for sure what would happen. He could not dictate to this man what he would decide to do. The matter of Ruth's redemption was in God's hands alone. His plan alone was what was driving the events inside the gate. Well, the same is true for our redemption, isn't it? We want to think that we have a hand in our salvation. We want to think that we're earning God's favor. We saw this as we went through the book of Galatians. We want to think that we have something that will make God love us. The scripture is consistent. Scriptures are consistent through and through that our best works can do nothing to earn our salvation. They can do nothing to improve our standing before God. Psalm 14 says that there is no one who does good. Not even one. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64 says that all of our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. And so they can only count against our salvation. Your works will do nothing to count toward God's favor. You and I, we are completely dependent upon our Redeemer. We rely on Him because of who He is and because of what He has done for us. Jesus Christ, He is God and He is man. And because He is God, He has the power alone. He alone has the power to save us. 
Because he is man, he has the ability to represent us. And because he has perfectly obeyed everything his Father commanded of him, everything, even death on a cross, he has earned the salvation of everyone who calls upon his name. You can't earn it for yourself, but Jesus Christ can. And if you have called upon his name, then he already has. All that is required of sinful people like you and me is that we repent of our sins, that we turn away from our sins, and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who trust in Jesus are to walk in obedience to his commands. But even then, we've got to trust in him. Even then, if we want to obey him, we have to rest and rely upon him alone. We have to continually trust in him for the carrying out of our salvation. We've got to remind ourselves every single day that our lives are in his hands. For those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus, if you have not trusted in him, today is the day. Today is the day to repent and to call upon him. The Lord will not look on you with favor if you do not plead the cross of Christ. But if you do, then the Lord will look on you with abundant favor, not because of yourselves, but because of what Christ has done for you and because of who you are in Christ. He is faithful and true. And he will continue to do for you and me what we cannot do for ourselves. Let us pray.